Well, uh, if you've got a Bible and you want to open it to Luke chapter 4, that's where we're going to be this morning. We're taking a break from our Sermon on the Mount series for two weeks to speak into uh, some subjects that the calendar uh, affords us an opportunity. Uh, so they're controversial subjects, and uh, the calendar gives us the opportunity to take them back to back, and uh, I'll explain why we're doing that in, in just a moment, but um, it, it gives us the opportunity to speak into some stuff that uh, they're hot-button issues, they're controversial subjects, and so uh, I don't always want to have to react to what's going on in society and have to speak into something because it's going on in the world and everyone's going, forming their own opinions. And they come to me and they say, hey, Cor, uh, what do you think about this? Which is, you know, that's a good thing to do, ask a pastor what they think about a, a specific subject. But oftentimes when that happens, there's really a question behind the question. It's not as sincere as it might seem. It's kind of like, hey, Cor, what do you think about this? And what I really mean is, do you agree with my position? And so, you know, conclusions are already formed and then uh, having to speak into it feels reactive and, and uh, challenging, hard to, hard to persuade people when they've already made up their mind. So the two subjects, um, tomorrow is Martin Luther King Jr. Day, and so we have the opportunity this weekend to speak into the, the topic of racism, and then next weekend we'll do Sanctity of Life Sunday. That's a holiday that was started by President Reagan back in 1984 on uh, January 23rd, I believe, and so we'll have the opportunity then to, to tackle these two different subjects that oftentimes are kind of pitted against one another uh, politically. And so um, let me go ahead and set some ground rules then and uh, just ask you to make me a, a couple of um, at least attempts at uh, promises. But as we go through these subjects, I, I, I guess my first request is that you would, to the best of your ability, suspend your judgment, uh, meaning Take time to listen, take time to reflect on whether or not what I'm presenting up here is just an opinion or if it's a scriptural truth. So take time with it um, so that you would have the opportunity to prayerfully reflect on the heart of God. Uh, one of the things that I'm concerned with as a pastor is I actually believe that we're more spiritually formed by these things than we are by the Bible. Uh, this is a completely immersive experience. You, you are constantly being bombarded. This is the information age, so you just have, you have the internet in your pocket, and you're constantly, through all these different channels of communication, are being spiritually formed, or malformed, we might even say. And so we need to, to be willing to, when it's, a, when it's a subject that maybe is controversial, we need to be able to sit with it, and think, and pray, and reflect, and, and ask for God's help. And so that's my first request, is that you'd be willing to do that. The second one is, if you come away going, I disagree with CORE, I, I come to a different conclusion, and uh, I, I'm thinking that maybe it'd be in my best interest to, to go somewhere else, to find another church. Here's my, my second request. Bef before you do that, have a conversation. Um, the Bible describes us in all kinds of different ways. It gives metaphors to talk about the church. It calls the church uh, a building, a temple a flock. It calls the church all kinds of different things. One of the things, though, that the Bible describes the church as a couple different times in different places, like 1 Corinthians 12 or Romans 12, is that the church is a body, and every person who's a part of the church is a member of the body. It's a, we're different body parts. And so if I wake up tomorrow and my foot is missing, 
that would be strange. And, but I would want to know what precipitated that. Why am I missing my foot? And right now, what I've, what I've observed, and this is not true of our church necessarily, but I, I think a lot of Christians within the last 24 months, um, a lot of Christians have made very abrupt changes to their church affiliation. And uh, as I've talked to a few of them, not from our church, but again from different churches, uh, what, what it revealed to me was more of a consumer mindset of like, hey, I go to a church because it does these different things for me. If it stops doing that, then I'm just going to quickly make, make a transfer. And I just think that misses the mark of what God intends for us. So as I talk about these different things, before you decide, you know what, next week I'm going to a new church, uh, do me a favor and have a conversation. Talk to myself or David or talk to one of our elders, but we would want to know and, and have that opportunity to dialogue around these things before uh, anything drastic happens. So Luke chapter 4, let's go ahead and read the passage. I'll pray, <clears throat> and then we'll get to work. Luke chapter 4, starting in verse 14, it reads like this. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son? They asked. Jesus said to them, Surely you will quote this proverb to me. Physician, heal yourself. And you will tell me, do here in your hometown what we've heard that you did in Capernaum. Truly, I tell you, he continued, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three and a half years, and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy, in the time of Elisha the prophet. Yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up, drove him out of the town, and took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off the cliff. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. Let's pray. Lord, we're asking for wisdom. We're praying that by your spirit, through your word, Lord, you would speak to each and every one of us. And we're praying, Lord, that you would help us to navigate this cultural moment, but, but more significantly, Lord, help us to know your heart. Help us to know what you're like, what you're about. Help us to be your people who are faithful to you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, when a president is 
inaugurated and placed into office, one of the things that you find them doing straight away is signing executive orders. And um, I did a quick little search about this, and I found that some presidents will sign as many as 30 in the first couple weeks of their presidency, uh, like Roosevelt, or as few as two, uh, maybe even less. I guess I didn't look at all the, all the information, but here's what, I, here's what I perceive. I think that you would be able to tell what kind of leadership to expect from that president over those four years based off of the things that they made an agenda on weeks one and two. That they were saying, these are the things that rise to the level of immediately taking action on. These are the sorts of things that you can expect. Well, what we find here in Luke chapter four is this is the inauguration of the public ministry of Jesus Christ. So what he straight away gets after, we might want to say, these things are important to him. They, they rise to the level of, I'm taking immediate action on these things. This is what I'm about. This is what you can expect from my leadership. So Jesus, in the previous chapters, he was, um, he was baptized and affirmed by his father. He's baptized and the voice from heaven spoke over him. And then he goes in, into the, the desert wilderness and he's tempted and then we find him right here in our section of scripture. This is where he starts his ministry. And I think it's significant, the things that he points out, the things that he takes on himself and says, this is, this is what you can expect of me. Three things show up here in our text that I think they're themes from this passage, but they actually run throughout the entirety of his ministry. Jesus, the, the, the ministry, the mission of Jesus has something to do with justice. That's the first thing that we find. Secondly, it has something to do with race, with ethnicity, with uh, dealing with ethnocentricity, like dealing with people who view their own race as the central one and the most important one. And then finally, there's a theme of rejection. So let's take them one at a time. When Jesus starts his ministry, he goes into the temple and by his activities and his teaching in that moment, he, he says to us, he says to them and to us, one of the things that you can expect from me is justice. He does that by citing Isaiah. Look with me again at verses 17 and following. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. It's a, it's a scroll. They didn't have published, you know, bound books like we would have, but they would have different aspects of the Bible. And they handed him the scroll and he unrolls it. And he found the place where it is written. He gets to Isaiah chapter 61 and he reads verses 1 and 2 and another nearby verse. So verse 18 in our text, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoner and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to, pro to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He, he cites from Isaiah chapter 61, he reads those different passages, Verse 20, he rolled up the scroll, he gave it back to the attendant, and he sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him, and he began by saying to them, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. This is an intentional act of our Lord. He goes into what we would consider a church service in the first century he has an opportunity to be engaged in that service. He takes a scroll. He very intentionally opens it up. Verse 17, finding the place where it is written. This is not incidental. This is intentional. He goes to this passage of scripture and, he, and then he reads it, rolls it up, sits down. And he says, 
today, this is coming true. In your hearing, this scripture is being fulfilled. So he takes from Isaiah and he points out these different aspects of this ministry of justice. First off, um, uh, let me say it like this. He, he is fulfilling these things both literally and spiritually. L- let's just look at him quickly. Let's rifle through the list. He's the anointed one, the one sent by the Spirit of God to perform this ministry. A part of it is declaring the good news of the gospel to the poor, to those who are destitute, to those who are without. He's announcing, he's publishing, he's proclaiming this incredible news. He's giving freedom to prisoners. He's able to release people from captivity who are imprisoned. He's giving sight to the blind. Those who are unable to see, he's able to offer them sight. He's releasing people from slavery, from oppression, and he's proclaiming the year of the Lord's favor. He's putting a timestamp on it and saying, this is now that opportunity for people to experience justice. Well, he does this, he, he, he performs this ministry of justice in, along those two different lines, both literally and spiritually. So he literally was able to take somebody who was blind, spit in some mud, mix it up, put it on his eyes, and give the person sight. So he's able to take people who are unable to see and literally gives them the ability to actually open their eyes and behold creation in front of them. He, he's able to do that but he's also giving spiritual sight. He's able to take people who are spiritually blind and and open their eyes to the realities of God. For instance, Nicodemus, he's having a conversation with a religious leader and the religious leader is wondering, how do I enter, you know, how do people get into the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus tells him and he goes, run that one by me again. I don't quite get that one. And Jesus is basically saying to him, There is a spiritual blindness about you. You're a teacher in Israel, and you don't understand these basic things. Let me give you sight, spiritual sight, so you can see what's really going on and what is really required. Jesus is able to do that. Through his ministry, Jesus is able to literally release people who are incarcerated. Now, it doesn't, I I don't recall any instances in, in the life of Jesus where this happens, but certainly right after. Some of the, this happens a couple different times, but Paul and Silas are arrested because of their commitment to Jesus Christ. They're proclaiming the good news of the gospel, and so people come along, and they grab them, and they beat them, and then they put them in prison. They put them in the center of the prison with chains around them, and at midnight, the Bible tells us in the book of Acts that they're singing hymns. They're arrested because of their commitment to Christ, They're in the prison, and they're singing hymns, and what happens? The Lord releases them. The chains fall off of them, the doors fly open, and they are set free. That's the kind of thing that our Lord can do. He can release people from prison. Now, he's also releasing people who are captive to sin, who who are bound and shackled by sin. That's a part of his ministry of justice as well. He is freeing people who are enslaved to sin. He's able to release people from slavery, literally. In the New Testament, there's a letter that's written by the Apostle Paul. What happens is there's a slave owner and a slave, and the slave breaks out of there, gets free. And the slave ends up encountering the Apostle Paul and hearing the good news of the gospel and becoming a Christian. 
And so Paul writes a letter back to the master, and he says, hey, listen, I'm going to send this guy back to you. You're not getting your slave back. He became a Christian. You're not getting your slave back. You're getting a brother. And so I'm appealing to you, not on the basis of a command I could give you as an apostle, but I'm, a, I'm appealing to you on the basis of love. Receive this man as a brother in Christ. And if he owes you anything, I'll pay it. I'm writing this with my own hand. Here's my handwriting. Put it on my account. So Jesus is able to take people who are slaves and liberate them. And he's able to do that spiritually as well. Those who are in bondage in various different ways. Jesus is liberating us from the bondage of oppression. So Jesus here is declaring what I'm doing now is a ministry of justice. What I care deeply about is this ministry of justice in all of its various forms. In fact, in Isaiah that he's reading from, in that same exact chapter, a little bit later on in verse 8, this is what it says, for I, the Lord, love justice. This is the word of Isaiah. It's the word of the Lord through the prophet Isaiah. And, and there's this reality that's going on here where, where we're realizing Jesus is taking on himself this mantle of being a minister of justice. It goes on to say in verse 11, the sovereign Lord will make righteousness. That's the, <clears throat> that's the outcome, excuse me, <clears throat> the outcome of justice when the world is right. And what happens when that goes on? Well, praise springs up from all the nations, before all the nations. Jesus is saying that this is his ministry. Now, one of the things that I was noticing this week was Jesus is not simply proof-texting a couple verses from Isaiah. It's much more than that. What Jesus is doing here is he's not saying, here's the list of the things that I'm going to do here. What he's actually doing is he's taking on himself, he's identifying himself as somebody that has been promised for a long, long time. He's saying those things that I, that person that Isaiah was talking about, that's me. In the book of Isaiah, in chapters, let's say 40 through the 60s, there, there are a couple different titles that are given. And they're kind of enigmatic figures, mysterious figures. You're like, who are these people? You've got the servant of the Lord who's going to suffer. And it's defying all their categories because you've got this incredible person who's going to suffer. And by their suffering, they're going to sprinkle the nations. But then you've got another designation as well. You've got this idea of the servant being the anointed one, the one, of, the one who's anointed by God for all of these incredible purposes. This anointed one is going to bring justice. He's going to make the world right. And so when Jesus picks up that scroll and he unrolls it and he finds the place and he goes, oh, right here, this is it. He reads it and then he sits down and he says, today in your hearing, this scripture is being fulfilled. Do you know what he's doing? He's saying, all that, that's me. All that you've been waiting for, it's coming true now because this is who I am. Now, that means that when he, dis when he puts justice forward as one of the things he's going to be concerned with, it's freighted with all those things that were happening in Isaiah, all those different promises that were being made. Now, I've been wrestling with God over this, and he's not given me the green light yet, but I would love to preach on Isaiah chapter 58. And because it's in that section, it's dealing with that, that servant, that anointed one of the Lord. 
But in there, what happens in Isaiah chapter 58, and I'll just, I'll just kind of reference it here, God is saying to his people, I am not impressed by your religious activity. I am not impressed by your worship services and your fasting and all these, you know, your preaching and all this different stuff. He says, is not this the kind of religious activity that I've chosen? Is not this the kind of fasting that I've chosen? To loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free, to break every yoke. Is it not to share your food with the hungry and provide food for the wanderer with shelter, food, to provide the poor wanderer with shelter? When you see the naked, to clothe them and to not turn away from your own flesh and blood. He's saying, look, I don't care about your church services if it doesn't result in you doing good in this world. So when Jesus says, this is me, that's the kind of stuff that we're talking about. He's saying, this is a part of my ministry. I care deeply about the world being right. And I am the one who is anointed to bring about justice in the world. So here's my thought on it. If we're going to follow him, our ministry needs to start to look like his ministry. What we are up to in this world needs to begin to reflect what he has been up to in this world. I'm not interested in being the kind of Christian who can gather together, read and study the Bible, and be of no usefulness for the world. I'm not interested in leading a church that says, hey guys, we're just going to have some fun little church services and you'll leave, you know, inspired or educated or whatever you want to feel as you walk out of here, but we're not going to be engaged in the world. We're not going to do anything that's going to better the world or break the yoke of oppression for those who are, are in difficult situations or feed the hungry or do anything of any value. No, no, no. If we're going to follow the Lord, he tells us he is the one who is bringing justice to the world, and I want to be a part of his ministry and his mission in the world. Well, secondly, he gives us this theme of race or ethnicity. And um, I've preached on this passage uh, at least two times that I could think of before, and I think both times I got it wrong. And uh, for whatever reason, recently this came up again, and I began to see that maybe what was going on here was a little bit different. So he's, he's doing this, and the, the immediate response of the crowd is they're very, very excited. Look at verse 22. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that were coming from his lips. So they hear him, okay, that's what you're like, that's what you're about, that's what you're going to prioritize, we're on board with that. And then they say something, and this is the part that I often got wrong. They say this, isn't this Joseph's son, they asked. And what I've always kind of maybe wrongly assumed is, it's kind of one of those things where it's like familiarity breeds contempt. Like they know him and they're having a hard time imagining him as the anointed one of the Lord. Like, hey, he grew up in our town. Like we, we know him. Like how can he claim to be the servant of the Lord? And that's how I always read it. But, but this week, I realized that's probably not right at all. They're not looking at him going, we can't imagine him being the anointed servant of the Lord. It's more like this. It's more like he's one of us. This is great news. Isn't he Joseph's son? So it's kind of like when somebody from your hometown does something and becomes famous, whether they become an athlete or, or they, you know, they do something noteworthy, and you begin to have this pride, this connection with them, and you go, we made it. We made it because they're one of us. 
They're from my hometown. They grew up in Roscoe. They're, they're one of us. And so there's this, this, this vibe that, well, look, if Jesus is claiming to be the suffering servant, the anointed of the Lord, isn't he one of us? Isn't that good? That's got to be good news for us. It means that we have a special claim on God. But look at how it unfolds. Jesus said to them, verse 23, Surely you will quote this proverb to me, Physician, heal yourself. And you will tell me, Do here in your hometown what we've heard that you did in Capernaum. In other words, he's, he's prophetically recognizing they're going to reject him, and here's why. Because he's going to take the grace of God to faraway places. And instead of celebrating that, they're going to resent that. Instead of celebrating that he is going to bring the good news of the gospel to the Gentiles, they're actually going to look on that and despise it. They're going to say, you're doing all these wonderful things far away, but don't forget where you came from. You're one of us. Come here and do that here. And when he doesn't do it, then they despise him and they reject him. And what he's doing then is he is dealing with this concept of of ethnocentrism where you look at yourself as the center of the universe and people who are like you and you say, this is where the activity of God needs to start and remain. So he tells two different historical examples from scripture. Look at verses 25 and 26. He tells the story of the widow of Zarephath. He says, I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three and a half years And there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. Elijah, a man of God, a prophet of God, a spokesperson of God, is rejected in his hometown. The king does not like him. It doesn't fit the messaging. It doesn't fit the narrative of the cultural moment. And so he rejects Elijah. And Elijah goes off to this faraway place, but there's a famine. And so there's no food. There's a crop shortage Everyone's starving, everyone's running out, and he finds this lady, and he says to her, can you make me a meal? And she says, I'm sorry, I can't. I only have the small amount of flour and the small amount of oil, and I'm actually getting ready to prepare a meal for my son and I. I'm a widow. My husband's no longer around. My son and I, we're going to sit down, we're going to eat this meal, and then we anticipate starving to death. And Elijah says, well, I've got some news for you. God is going to take care of us. Here's what you need to do. If you will listen to the word of the Lord, God will care for you. And he says, let's make a meal and you share it with me and God will continue to provide for you. And he does. The flour doesn't run out. The oil doesn't run out. God continually supplies for this family. And here's what Jesus is saying. There were all kinds of widows during that time. There were all kinds of people struggling with a lack of resources, but God's grace visited a faraway place. God's grace visited a foreigner. Elijah went and he shared a meal with a Gentile. He went to Zarephath, a region in Sidon, and, and he, the, the grace of God showed up in that household. And what you see then is this ironic reality. You've got the rejection from the people of God, but then you've got the reception by the Gentiles. And what you have then is the outworking of the gospel. You've you've got a Jew and a Gentile sitting around a table sharing a meal together. You've got a Jew, an insider, and a Gentile, an outsider, but they're brought together and they're sharing a meal together. What do you think that, that meal was like? What do you think they talked about there? The grace of God. The grace of God to the undeserving. 
God's ability to care for them. God's saving work. Because what did he do? He quite literally saved them from dying. And they shared in that experience together. That is the good news of the gospel. The good news of the gospel is that people who are very unlike one another get to sit around a table and rejoice in God's saving work. And what is Jesus doing then? He is abolishing ethnocentrism. He's dealing with racism. He tells another example, verse 27. This time it's Naaman the Syrian. There were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha, the prophet, yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. Second example now, you've got a foreigner who's a military uh, leader, and that military had come in and beat up on the Israelites and actually taken some people away. And Naaman is one of the commanders in that army, and he now has a, a captive person, a servant girl, who is now working for him. She's an Israelite girl, but she's now his servant. And as the story unfolds, uh, Naaman ends up with leprosy, with a, with a terrible skin disease that is life-threatening. And, um, and his servant girl says, Naaman, guess what? I know how you can be healed, how you could be restored. I know a man who could save you, who could restore your life. And the story is too long to go into all the details here, but eventually Naaman listens to the girl, listens to Elisha, the prophet of God, and the word of God from him, and does what God instructs him to do, and he is healed. And Jesus is saying, man, isn't that a bizarre story too? That God visited his grace and his compassion on the enemy. God was willing to heal Naaman the Syrian. See, Jesus is telling us what I care about is justice in the world, first and foremost. That's going to be a feature of my ministry. And also that justice will result in people from all nations coming to worship me. I'm going to deal with this issue that we have in the human heart that results in things like racism that results in things like thinking that your people is the only and most important people on the planet. So Jesus is dealing with that. Now, again, sin is selfish, so that's why that, that shows up in us. We, we tend to think of ourselves at the very center of the universe, and anyone who's like us can be in our little circle, but people who are different from us, they become them, and they become enemies, and they become people with which we're hostile toward. And Jesus, by his ministry, is saying, let's put it like this, the beginning of the ministry of Jesus is the end of racism. The beginning of the ministry of Jesus is the end of racism. It, it, he, what, he is, what he has come to do is to have Gentiles and Jews together at the same table. People like us and people who are unlike us sharing in the grace of God. Now, obviously, there are all kinds of implications for racism today as we think about the world that we're living in right now. If we think about racism in the United States, I'll be the first to say it is a very complex issue. And I'm not up here to try to propose ideas to solve anything because honestly, I, I, don't, I don't have a clue how to do that. Um, unfortunately, the topic itself has been politicized, so we, we no longer actually talk about the issue. We talk about how we're going to deal with the issue. And that's unfortunate. But that it exists is not up for debate. Right? When, you, when we just 
look at our history as a nation and we recognize slavery was a key feature of who we, who we have been. Slavery was a, was a normative thing in our world and, and a recent thing too. When you're looking at history and you think, man, 50, 60 years ago, that's not very long. And, and those sorts of things don't just go away. I mean, think about the Israelites in the Old Testament. They were freed from hundreds of years of slavery. And on the one hand, there was an immediate liberation that they were, they were slaves one day, they're not the next. But how long did it take for them to actually lose some of those slave-like tendencies? It was multiple generations at least. Because they had 400 plus years of experience, it didn't just go away overnight. And in fact, it never fully went away. It became a part of their identity. We were slaves in Egypt, but God has rescued us. So, so we can't erase our history here in the United States of America, nor should we even try. But we need to think through, what does the ministry of Jesus demand from us? Well, for me, it means I can't pretend it's not an issue. If racism is a problem in our world and has been throughout the scriptures and continues to be, I don't want to be somebody who pretends it is not a reality. Um, I, was, I was just reading up on some stuff this week, and, and it surprised me. But, you know, one of the things that we did, um, we, in the United States of America, what was said was, Black individuals are not human. They're like a percentage of human. But when, when, we, when people were saying that, it, gave, it, it, it justified all kinds of inhumane activity. Like it, it gave the ability to say, if they're not really humans, then we can do awful things to them because they're not like us. Guys, that's a, that's a part of the history that we have. And so when we think about the ministry of Jesus and his involvement in the world, we have to acknowledge that he, he cares about these things, and we should too. The end of the Bible gives us a picture in Revelation chapter 15. It describes the result of his ministry. In Revelation 15, we get this vision for the future of what that's going to be like, and, in, and what we're told is <clears throat> all nations are going to be worshiping him. It says this, just and true are your ways. There's that word again, just. He's, he's going to bring about his justice. Just and true are your ways, king of the nations, for you alone are holy and all nations will come and worship before you for your righteous acts have been revealed. Now here's what we miss when we just read it in English. The word nations there, do you know what it, what it is? It's ethnos. It's a word for ethnicity. When you look into the future, and you look at the result of the ministry of Jesus Christ, what do you find? All ethnicities worshiping the Lamb. All people with all their different cultural backgrounds, with all their different differences, coming before the Lord in worship of Him. Let's be a people who are engaged in that sort of ministry. Well, here's the last part, and it's the most unfortunate. Jesus says, my ministry is about justice. My ministry is about race. And that ministry results in the dividing walls of hostility being torn down, as we're told in Galatians. We no longer have to look at people as them versus us, but we can be brothers and sisters in Christ, and we can care well for one another. But then, here's the third theme that emerges in our text. It's rejection. It's rejection. When people connect the dots and they see what the gospel demands from them, 
what, what Jesus is really up to, here's how they respond. We hate that. Look with me at verses 28 to 30. All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. When they connected the dots of what Jesus was saying and what it was going to demand from them, of the fact that his mercy was going to visit people who weren't on their team, they hated it. They got up, they drove him out of the town and took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off a cliff. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. Here's the really, really unfortunate part about the ministry of Jesus Christ. When, when you begin to realize what he is demanding from us, sometimes what we do is we, we recoil at it so drastically that we think, I hate this. I hate this. I hate this to the degree that I am willing to take the Lord and throw him off a cliff. That to me is surprising. That, that made me wrestle with, what on earth would, would cause anyone to think what I need to do right now is to kill this guy. What I need to do right now is to get rid of this guy. Let's take him to the edge of the, the cliff. Let's throw him off. We don't want anything to do with this guy and his ministry. Why would anyone come to that conclusion? I'm not entirely sure, but it at least partly is his ministry just didn't fit their paradigm. It, it was too demanding. It, it was too inclusive of people who were different from them. It was too offensive. Are you kidding me? You're going to go to people who are far away. You're going you're to use examples from God working in faraway places, and, and you're going to condemn us. And we hate that. So when Jesus says, here's what my ministry is about, it's about justice. It's about dealing with race and bringing about racial harmony, bringing about the worship of the, the lamb at the throne with all ethnicities represented there, one of the things that we have to acknowledge is when we hear that, we might get so flaming mad that we just want to walk away or kill Jesus. And we need to be careful about the posture of our heart in these moments. I want to invite each and every one of us to engage with the Lord in his ministry. I want to be a part of a church that can be part of the solution and helping people experience that breaking of the yoke of oppression. And I don't know what that looks like exactly, but, but that's got to be a part of our conversation. How do we join Jesus in his mission? On, on day one, so to speak, he says, this is what I'm about. Let's get on his team. Let's be on his side. Let's participate in his ministry to our broken world. Let's pray. Lord, we're asking that by your spirit that each and every one of us would continue to wrestle with these realities. Continue to think through your ministry, Lord. We, we, we want to be honest about what you care about. We also want to be honest with our own hearts. The gravitational pull of sin that wants to make everything about us and people who are like us. But your mission is far too grand for that. So help us to care about the nations. People who are different from us. Help us to do all that we can to make the world a just place that is equitable and fair and full of your righteousness. Help us to be your people for your glory, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.